let's just take a little bit of time. And again, if you would, I understand statements, and uh, we're looking for the question in the midst of it, okay? <laughs> and I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. So let's go ahead, Jen, I think. The answer to the first may answer the second. Um, in Revelation, I think it was seven, when you were talking about the doxology during the tribulation, um, uh, I guess it was um, the multitudes of every nation and tribe were part of that doxology. So if the rapture can happen before every tribe has heard the gospel, would those people be those who may have died during the first part of the tribulation? Is that why it says every tribe and every nation were part of that multitude? Right, right. You have, in Revelation 7 starts off talking about, uh, it's really a flashback. Uh, Revelation 6 starts a chronology with the, with the six seal judgments. Okay, that takes place, I think, around 20, 21, 24 months, something like that. During that, at the very beginning of that time, that's when Revelation 7 takes place. There's going to be the uh, calling out of the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're going to, I think they're going to be evangelists. And they're going to go throughout the world. They're going to be um, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I believe. And they're going to be going throughout the world in evangelism. And there's going to be such chaos after the rapture occurs. I mean, if you think about it today, if the rapture occurred today, when you think about the number of people who are involved in government in the United States, the number of people who are involved in every level of the corporate structure who are believers, and all of those people just instantly vanish, you're just going to have chaos. And then there's going to be this period, interim period of, could be a few, several months, between the uh, rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. There are going to be people who are just experiencing disaster, and they're going to seize on the gospel of hope. And then with the rise of the Antichrist, there's going to be persecution and incredible martyrdom of Christians throughout the world. And so the gospel is going to go to everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what, what the text says. And, so they're, and they're going to be martyred as well, and they're going to be in heaven. So that's just, it's an innumerable host at that point. Okay, so this is just a clarification of my understanding concerning the judgments during the tribulation. And that is the first half of the tribulation would be the seals and trumpets. And the second half, the last three and a half years, would be the bowls. Is that correct? Yeah, right, that's correct. Okay. You have the seals and trumpets in the first half and then bowls in the last half. Okay, thank you. Daniel 9 talks about uh, uh, the Antichrist persecuting the saints, but the rapture has already happened. So who are the saints that are persecuted by the Antichrist? Those would be the tribulation saints. And that's not the church? That's not the church. Saint, it's, you have Old Testament saints. You have church age saints. You have tribulation saints. You have millennial saints. Saint is not a technical term for one particular age or dispensation. It just means someone who is sanctified, someone who's a believer. Uh, I got a question about Second Thessalonians two. You mentioned. Uh, could you please speak up? Um, yeah, Second Thessalonians two. You mentioned that the falling away—the term that's used, falling away—I'm I'm not catching your question. Hold your mic close to your mouth and articulate, please. 
This question is about 2 Thessalonians 2. You had mentioned that the falling away is more correctly understood as the departure. Could you please just repeat that? I had missed it. And if you could expound just a little bit. Okay, the word there in the Greek is apostasy, and we normally think of apostasy as, as, as going into heresy, okay? But the literal meaning of apostasy is departure. And it, in certain contexts, it's talking about departure from the faith. But it's also used in, in secular literature, and I believe in one passage in Acts, a form of the word is used to refer to the departure of a ship, departure to go on a trip, things of that nature. So the core semantic meaning of the word apostasia is departure. Context depends, determines what, it's, what is being departed from, what the departure is related to. And all we have in 2 in, uh, uh, Thessalonians 2.3 is when the departure occurs, that has to occur before the man of sin is revealed. And so the I issue is, is this a, a great apostasy? Well, I've got my, I, did, I did my doctoral work in church history. Throughout most of the history of Christianity, 80% of Christendom has been involved in one kind, level of apostasy or another. So which apostasy are we talking about when apostasy has been a major trend in much of church history? So it doesn't fit historically to identify a particular uh, apostasy. I, and I think that, that lexically and semantically the, and contextually, the meaning of departure, meaning the rapture, the departure of the saints, the church, is, is better to understand it that way prior to the rapture. So we're not going to know who the, who the man of sin is, who the, uh, law, the lawless one is, because he's not revealed until after the departure. And uh, on that... Uh, um similar passage, the Thessalonian passage, one of the things that has, I've struggled with uh, understanding the phraseology of where Paul says, um, I beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him that you not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, so on and so forth. And he says that will not come unless the so you're saying this is, that's what it is, the departure comes first, rather than the falling away, which really drives the post-millennial view. Is that correct? Um, it, yes, it, it, it might. I think, I think he's asking that. Is I'm that sorry, not, not post-millennial, post-trib rapture. Paul's basically saying there, because remember there was a forged letter uh, arguing that the day of the Lord had started. And Paul's simple point is, the day of the Lord hasn't started because you, the church, are still present. Right. Okay. And to, just to build on Robbie's point a minute, um, the word, words come from roots, and you can use them in the noun form or the verb form. The verb form is, uh, I think it's ephistomy, and it's used about 15 times in the New Testament. 12 of the 15, and I've looked through every single one of them, it is referring to a physical departure. So like when Paul has the thorn in the flesh and he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might be departed from me, that's talking about a physical departure. So what we're trying to argue is that apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2 is not a doctrinal departure. It's a physical departure. 
And that's what fits the context better. Okay. I don't want to dominate, but I got another quick quick two if I can do that. But um, one is about uh, Babylon. So literal Babylon is as opposed to figurative Babylon. Some say it's the United States. Some say it's Rome. Um, I. It seems to me, from a reading of the Old Testament, Babylon, ancient Babylon, literal Babylon, has to come to judgment. That hasn't happened yet. But the people that say it did point to a destruction of Babylon in the past. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I can comment on that. I, as he said, I wrote my dissertation on, on that subject. The subtitle of it is babbling on about Babylon. So I don't want to... <laughs> but when you, when you look at the, the Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Isaiah 13 and 14, it describes a judgment that's cataclysmic in nature. It happens instantaneously. Once the judgment happens, it says Babylon will never be rebuilt. And when you look at Daniel 5, which is the historic fall of Babylon uh, in the handwriting on the wall chapter, where Medo-Persia overthrew uh, Neo-Babylonia. And you get into the writings of Herodotus, and you get into looking at the Cyrus Cylinder, which is Cyrus's boasts. What those two sources reveal is there wasn't even a battle there. And basically what happened is they, they diverted the Euphrates River, and the Persians went under the wall and they captured, the Persians captured Babylon without even a conflict. And the Cyrus Cylinder, he basically says, I, I made sure no artifact in Babylon was destroyed, you know, because Cyrus was a polytheist, and he wanted to make the Babylonian gods, little g, happy. And so there's no cataclysm, there's no war. Um, and so obviously Isaiah 13 and 14 Jeremiah 50 and 51 have never been fulfilled. If, if you are interested in a literal approach, if you want to allegorize it, you can say they have been fulfilled, but literally they haven't. And when you take, do a good study of Jeremiah 50 and 51 and compare it to Revelation 17 and 18, the two passages line up perfectly. You know, for example, it talks about a stone in both passages sinking into the Euphrates, uh, a golden cup is mentioned in both passages. So yes, Babylon has fallen historically, but there's a greater cataclysmic Babylon yet to come. And that's when Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18 will be fulfilled. So obviously for that to happen, Babylon has to make some kind of comeback and become the center of world power Sort of the way uh, Nimrod, you know, was trying to build the Tower of Babel there in the plains of Shinar. And it was disrupted by God. And so what Nimrod failed to do, the Antichrist will complete, only to be overthrown by God, as he mentioned today in uh, uh, Golden Bowl number seven. So does that help? Yes. So along those lines, if, if literal Babylon is to rise again. What are we looking at right now? I mean, the actual city of Babylon, if I, I'm not an expert on this, so, but isn't it just kind of like there's some relics, there's some buildings that have been rebuilt, Saddam Hussein was trying to do something, but really it's not much right now. 
Good. So where, what do we, what would we expect to see? And what, when we, and this Babylon that's coming, if this is true, what is it? Is it the literal city or is it something nearby? It's, it's a reincarnation of the Tower of Babel. So it'll be a literal city in Iraq and it will be the headquarters of a worldwide system. And, and it seems to be the center of commerce. Yeah, the, right? and, and the center of commerce also. And I, I mentioned some Old Testament passages. You, I want to throw into the mix Zechariah 5, 5 through 11, the woman in the basket. And she's let loose in the end times to build a house in the land of, of Shinar. So some way, somehow, and I don't really know, because you said, will we see it? I don't know how fast it'll be built before the rapture. He mentioned a possible interim period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week. Maybe Babylon's rebuilt during that time period. But some, some way, somehow, Babylon has to come back to life. And now, where is most of the world's attention today? It's in that part of the world. I mean, we used to fight our wars in Europe, and then things started moving east to Korea, to Vietnam, and now the whole center of the world's attention is focused on that area. And I might add this, where is most of the world's oil supply? That part of the world. So black gold, which is necessary for the economies of the world to run, I mean, it would be very easy for the Antichrist to come to power and annex... Iraq and a few other nations and build a worldwide capital there. So now not all prophecy students hold to this. A lot of them say, well, Babylon really means Rome. And they think Babylon is used as a code for Rome, which I don't believe because Paul spoke about Rome without any fear, having to disguise it as some kind of code. You know, Babylon means Babylon, Rome means Rome, Jerusalem means Jerusalem, the church means the church, Israel means Israel. So the more you move into a consistent literal approach to the Bible, the more you see there's a future for Babylon, and it completes a, a, a bunch of themes uh, that, that really start in the Old Testament. So I, I'm looking for a rebuilt Babylon. Does, if it happens before the rapture, I won't be surprised. I kind of have a tendency to think that it'll happen after the rapture, but before the 70th week starts. But Babylon is a very uh, significant part of the end time scenario. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I just want to revisit something from last night just for a moment. I agree that that the tribulation period is for the Jews. It's the end of the time of the Gentiles. It's for the Jews. And that there will be a great delusion. Uh, last night you said that if somebody refused Jesus during the church age, that you believe they could have a second chance to get saved during the tribulation. And I just wondered where there were verses or why you held that because I feel like when the church age ends, if you've denied Jesus Christ, I, I don't see where we would get a second chance. That the Gentile age is over, you've denied him, you know, why would you get a second chance during the tribulation? I just want some scripture. Well, I, I, don't, I don't have a scripture that says, thus saith the Lord, you get a second chance. But... <laughs> 
I, don't, I also don't have a scripture that says you don't get a second chance. And they, they, the whole argument is built on 2 Thessalonians 2, around verse 8, 9, the strong delusion. So every time I've heard this argument made, they're saying people are put under a strong delusion. And therefore, if you reject Christ today, you'll never be able to do it in the tribulation period. And go back and study that passage. It's not talking, it's not, we're asking of that text a question it's not answering. It's not dealing with that particular scenario, what happens to somebody in the age of the church that rejects Christ. So there is no verse that, that tells me otherwise. And I also know at the end of the day, God is a God of grace who desires all men to be saved and all to come to a saving knowledge. And we've heard today about the plethora of Gentiles that will be saved in the tribulation period. And so to me, it's, I don't have a verse, but to me it's very reasonable that a person could reject Christ today and get saved in the tribulation period. Of course, the much easier way is to accept Christ now, go in the rapture path of least resistance. So I don't know if that helps. But. Well, one thing I would add is you're going to have 144,000 Jews get saved almost immediately after the rapture. And I don't think it's because they get tapped on the shoulder, they just automatically change. And that somebody brought them the gospel. You're going to have no believers on the earth when the rapture after the rapture occurs. None. Who's going to evangelize those 144,000? Who? Nobody. That means those 144,000 got the gospel before the rapture. And I know personally, I have, I know dozens of unsaved, I have dozens of unsaved Jewish friends who can probably give every person in, or give the gospel to an unbeliever better than almost anybody in this room because they've heard it so many times. And if they're alive when the rapture come, comes, they understand the doctrine. They've been taught this. They've been told this. They all know this. Rapture is going to occur. Some of those people are going to be saved instantly. They're going to say, uh-oh, Robbie was right. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have two questions. Uh, mine sort of builds off of the last question a bit. In 1 Corinthians, it mentions a whole list of um, people that won't enter the kingdom of heaven, like adulterers. It goes on and on. But then after it says... You can be saved. I think that shows, you know, the extension of God's grace and what he's willing to do to save us and seek us out. Um, my question is, it, it names one, only one sin that is, um, you know, forever an eternal threat. And I think um, with, with people that get the mark of the beast, and I noticed when you were going over Revelation, I think it was 24. Revelation 24, it mentioned the people who um, didn't take the mark of the beast would be alive again um, or uh, resurrected, and the ones who were already uh, dead stayed dead. So my thought is the people with the mark of the beast can still be saved. It doesn't say that it cannot. They cannot. Okay. So that that was my well, one of my questions. Remember I said that... that the, 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 the false prophet's the one who enforces this mark of the beast. This doesn't go into effect until the second half of the tribulation. Okay, I do not believe anybody, because again and again you have at least three times these judgments and says, and still they did not repent. Mm -hmm. and, and you have this drumbeat of, of rejection of the gospel. I don't think anybody gets saved during the second half of okay. the tribulation. 
and that's when you have the mark of the beast in effect. So it's going to be very, very clear. When people take the mark of the beast, they're not getting a credit card. When people take the mark of the beast, they, are re they consciously are rejecting the gospel, and they know what the issue is. So it's the, the, taking the mark of the beast is an effect, not the cause. The cause is they've rejected Christ. Because they've rejected Christ, mm -hmm. they, they have allegiance to the Antichrist. Okay. So no going back. Um, my second question is, um, I believe you were, uh, you were talking about the seals, and one of them is, you know, who's so great to open the seals, and it's sort of taking back the earth. Um, so... Um, it made me think of Matthew, I think, when he was tempted by Satan. Jesus was tempted by Satan. So is that because basically once um, Satan tempted them in the garden, the earth has kind of been a shared space and leased out by good and evil, that it needs to be actually taken back? Yeah, that's why Satan is called the god of this age and the prince and power of the air and the god of, the, the god of this world is because... He usurped authority over, man was created in God's image and likeness to rule over the planet, but lost it when Satan took over. When Satan offers the kingdoms of the world to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, you can't give them to me. He, he recognizes Satan has authority over the kingdoms of the world. He took it from Adam. And when Jesus comes back as the second Adam, he is going to fulfill Adam's original role and destiny to be the king of the earth and to rule over the earth, Genesis 1, 25 to 27, to have dominion over the earth. So he fulfills man's original purpose at that second coming. If I could just add to it, and that explains the Exodus language in the book of Revelation. Because you read about these judgments, you know, water to blood. Uh, there's a reference to frogs in Revelation 16. Uh, darkness, locusts. You, you're reading that, you say, wait a minute, I've seen that already in the judgments in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And I think the reason for that parallel is to show a lot of things. Number one, the judgments in Revelation are just as literal as the ones in Exodus. Number two, they increase in intensity, just like God turned up the temperature, if you will, on Pharaoh until he capitulated. And then number three, what is God doing in the Exodus? He's releasing the nation of Israel from 400 years of Egyptian bondage. What is God doing in the yeah. book of Revelation? He's releasing the whole earth from the satanic bondage that it's been under ever since the fall of man. And, and this is why Satan is going crazy in the tribulation period and trying to stop God's plan by gobbling up Israel. Revelation 12, because Israel is the instrument God is using during that time period. Because Satan has enjoyed running the world. He doesn't want to give it up. And as every judgment takes place, Satan's grip on the planet gets a little looser and a little looser. And that's the scroll, I believe, that Jesus is unsealing in Revelation 5. What's the scroll? It's the title deed to the earth. So every time a seal is open, another judgment hits the planet, and Satan's grip gets a little looser, and finally the whole seal is opened, and we know where this is going, because the seals are going to uh, initiate the trumpets, and the trumpets are going to initiate the bowls. And by the time you get to chapter 20, uh, the planet Earth has been liberated from satanic rule, 
And that's why John keeps using imagery from the book of Exodus to, to get us to draw that connection. So until that, those judgments take place, the, the world is under, we're, we're living in Satan's territory, mm-hmm. which is why we're called ambassadors. Uh, what's an, if I'm America's ambassador to Iran, I'm representing American values on Iranian soil. That's what we are doing here as the body of Christ. We're representing kingdom values in Satan's world. So I don't know. We'll Thank learn, you. But, yeah. I'm really interested in how to live in this world and carry these values in the midst of all those other kinds of feelings. So I would like to know, how do you do that? Like, how do you surround another person's views with Christianity views without turning them into a raving maniac, which I seem to do? I don't don't know. They like... Ah, you know, they go crazy. So I wanted a way of that you have told of surrounding a view in Christian worldview. Well, yeah, one world. of the ways to do that, because in our society, um, it's very, very difficult to have an adult-level calm discussion. And so you have to be very wise in, in the conversation. And I think one of the keys is that the person that we're talking to has to understand that we respect them. If they sense that we're just going to cover an argument, it's over. A way that Jesus used time and again was to ask questions. He asked something like over 100 questions in the Gospels. When God spoke to Adam and Eve, did he start with a declarative sentence or an interrogative sentence? It was a question. When he spoke with Job, why, did he start with a statement or a question? He had a whole quiz. <laughs> um, so I think there's a reason why God works that way is because when we are asked a question, it forces us to think how we're going to respond. At least it starts us thinking. And so that's one of the, one of the ways I think we can mimic how the Lord Jesus used it. Non-threatening question. Some of the college students I work with, they, they have precipitated good classroom conversations by not yelling or getting out and so on because all it does is just create, get a flesh conflict. So I've, I've taught the, the young people to just be calm, show the prof that you're doing his work, you respect him, but you have a question. And when a, when a, it just takes one Christian to ask a question in a classroom, and then all of a sudden, the others who may be Christians, quiet Christians, afraid of the, of the classroom, they come alive because, if not, they come to the guy afterwards and say, gosh, I wished I could have, I had the courage to ask that. So I think it's a gentle questioning. Robbie, I know you have to catch a plane, so I'll make it quick. Oh, please, I won't take time. I have one question, and it comes out of Luke 21, and most of Luke 21 is Jesus speaking. But I truly want to know uh, from verse 28 what Jesus said and what he meant in correlation with everything you're teaching us. Verse 28 says, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
when you li- when these things begin to happen, lift up your heads for your redemption is drawing near. She wants an interpretation of that. Okay, I, I got a, I've got a hearing problem, and there's a couple of microphones here that I are, are make you more fuzzy than you can imagine. So I have, I've had, and they've been over here, so I just can't even, it's just like static on the radio. Um, in Matthew 24, Jesus is giving instruction to those who are going to be present in that tribulation period. Uh, he talks about when uh, uh, those who endure to the end will be saved. He's not talking about salvation, justification. He's talking about those who manage to live and survive to the end of the tribulation. They will be delivered. They go into the kingdom. So when, he, when he's talking to this group and they see these things and he says, your redemption draweth nigh, he's talking about the fact that their uh, redemption as a nation which comes with the, with the return of the Lord and establishment of his kingdom, that is getting close. When you see these things, your redemption draws nigh. But he's, he's not addressing the disciples per se. He's answering their question. But he is, he is really speaking to those who will be alive at the time just as he says in that passage, when you see the sign, the abomination of desolation, flee into the, uh, into the hills. Well, the d- disciples weren't going to be alive then. They weren't going to be the ones who see. He's addressing that tribulation generation. And that's, you know, that's, the, the, that's the birth pangs. The, the birthing of what? The birthing of the kingdom. For the sake of time, we're going to do one more. And I know you've, you wanted to, and then what we're going to do is we're going to have a word of prayer. If you have further questions, we're going to go into the fellowship mall where you can address them. I'm going to get them to move that way because I think last night they got uh, kind of uh, questioned here, which is fine, but we're going to try to do that in the fellowship mall. Okay, so one more right here. We're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll shift to the fellowship mall. Okay, go ahead. Thank uh, Robbie, you. that uh, large army from the east that's referred to in Revelation there's a reference to 200 million men. Is that literal men or demonic? Those are demons. Because they're, they're kept in restraint under the Euphrates. Okay, so there's, later there's a reference at, at the, I think it's the seventh bowl judgment, the Euphrates dries up. I think that has to do with the, the, the Antichrist because he, he, he's going to have Babylon as his capital. Okay, twice Euphrates is mentioned there. I think that's really significant in light of the fact that literal Babylon is just the other side of the Euphrates. So this, is, this opens the pathway for them to cross and to come uh, west toward Jerusalem. But the, two, the 200 million army, you know, uh, how Lindsay popularized that as well. The Chinese, you know, the Chicoms ha- can put 200 million in the field, and that's the Chicoms coming in from the east, and that's not what the text is t- clearly talking about these as being uh, a demonic force. All right, questions. Hands, we'll run to you. Thank you very much. And if I could, and I, because I understand some of these questions can be difficult. Do I need another one? No. In case someone else wants one. Okay, good. Um, Keep it. Sometimes we make statements and we're searching for the question. You understand what I'm saying? So (laughs) let's keep them pithy, if I could put it that way, and pertinent, okay? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. We're raptured before tribulation. Are we not supposed to be concerned with being chipped? You know, receiving a trip when you're far a, t- a chip on your forehead or 
back of your hand. Should we not worry about that? Because that seems to be happening in uh, Australia yeah. and other places. Yeah, uh, real, real quick, my take on that is the mark of the beast. And in Revelation 14, if you receive the mark of the beast, you consign yourself to hell. Um, to my understanding of it, that is something that can only happen for people in the tribulation period that know exactly who the Antichrist is. And they are making a conscious decision to reject Christ. So it only concerns that group of people. What we see today are kind of forerunners of that system. I personally don't think it's a really great idea to get chipped anyway. No one's going to do that to me if I have something to say over it. But I don't, if that should happen to somebody, I don't think someone consigns themselves to hell if they do it prior to the rapture. That would be my take on it. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree. I don't think, I, taking the mark of the beast is a, is, is a, is a thought-through decision. It's not like um, you can accidentally get it by filling out a, like a credit card application. And oops, I got the mark of the beast, now I'm going to go to the lake of fire. No, it's going to be, some people think it's almost an initiation rite, a swearing of allegiance has to take place to get this. And since it's the mark of the beast, it can't come until the beast comes, and the Antichrist isn't going to come until after we're raptured. So we can't, we're not something for us to lose sleep over. Good, somebody else. Yeah, Greg, you want to? Thank you. Uh, my question concerns um, when you said that what would we be doing, you know, if Christ came today, how, you know, what would he catch us doing? Um, so if he comes and you're being a naughty Christian at the time, do you live through the tribulation or do you go anyway and just lose rewards yeah sunday we're going to answer that question oh okay. uh, you'll you'll lose rewards but let me just real briefly there's a, a view out there that is wrong i think it's called partial rapture uh -huh. where god is coming back christ is coming back only for those that are living for jesus so if you're in the movie theater watching that wrong movie and the rapture happens you're left in the movie theater and that's basically a view called partial rapturism. And everybody that preaches this, I notice, they think they're the holy crowd and not the unholy crowd. So they use it as a warning to the unholy crowd. But the refutation of that is you can't get a more carnal church than the Corinthians. You know, Ray Steadman called the first Corinthians first Californians. Uh, they, they're, they're carnal to the... To the full extent. And yet Paul says, we will all be changed. So if you believe in the rapture, if you're living for Christ, once the rapture happens, regardless of what your spiritual condition is, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going whether you want to or not. Good question though. We've always been taught. Can you hear? We've always been taught that the gospel had to be preached into all the world before the rapture would happen. Is that not true, or is this day and age do we say that has been done? Okay, I would say that's a misinterpretation uh, of Matthew twenty-four fourteen, 
which specifically says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. And that's found in Christ's description of the tribulation period. So what it's saying is the, the gospel is going to go out aggressively in the tribulation period through, A, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, B, through the, probably the two witnesses, and C, Revelation 14 talks about an angel flying to and fro, giving all men the eternal gospel. So that's the, the context of that. So what the church leaves incomplete in terms of world evangelization God will complete through his end time program. And then the end will come. So it's not a, a, a passage dealing with something the church has to do. It's the blanketing of the gospel in the tribulation period. So it's, that would be a mis, I hope I'm making sense, that's a misapplication of Matthew 24, 14. Does that help at all? What do you think? Yeah, Matthew 24 is all talking about what happens within the tribulation. It's not talking about the church age at all. So that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in this period. It's just what happens, you know, during the tribulation that the gospel will, as Andy said, will go to everybody. There will be no one who doesn't hear it. It's going to come through the 144,000, the two witnesses, through numerous, you know, innumerable uh, believers who come to uh, Christ during the tribulation period. And then they're going to, uh, the angels are going to, cover all the other bases. I have a related question. Um, in Matthew 24, does any part of that uh, refer to the, the rapture? Like, for example, when it's talking about the uh, one man in the field, uh, one gets right. taken, the other gets left. Right. That's a great question, and you'll hear a lot of very popular prophecy teachers, one taken, the other left, use that to describe the rapture. But when you study that in context, what you'll see is those taken are taken into judgment. And it's, if you back up a few verses in the chapter, it talks about how the flood, a judgment came and took them all away. So being taken in that context is a bad thing. Being taken in the rapture is a good thing. So Matthew 24 to my mind, is not talking about the rapture at all. It's talking about the end time judgments that Jesus will usher in when he returns to the earth. And he's going to take some into judgment. And just look at it. I mean, the problem is we, we, we read one verse and we're not studying it in context. Check it out in context and you'll, you'll see, I think, what I'm talking about. It's good. Let me get this way. Hi, so I know that you said that there's going to be one Antichrist, which I do believe, but aren't there many Antichrists that have come? Yeah, 1 John 2, 18, is it? Talks about many Antichrists. Uh, but there's little baby Antichrist, then there's Papa Antichrist. <laughs> Papa Antichrist is in Revelation 13. But yeah. he is preceded by other little antichrists even before the age of the church ends. Well, you know, another thing to, to think about is that, that you don't have any idea when the rapture is going to occur. Anybody here know when the rapture is going to occur? Okay. Satan doesn't know when the rapture is going to occur. Now, think about that. He's never known when the rapture is going to occur. That means at every decade, every generation, he has to have a system ready to go in case the rapture occurs. He has to have somebody 
a candidate for being the Antichrist ready to go. That's why when people look out there, they say, oh, it's Napoleon, it's Bismarck, it's the Kaiser, it's Hitler, it's the Ayatollah Khomeini, it's Saddam Hussein, it's, it's Ronald Wilson Reagan, it's Bill Clinton. Well, outside of, outside of Reagan, it could have been possibly, potentially, <laughs> almost any of them, not, not Bill Clinton. Actually, I knew, uh, I've got a close friend who knew his pastor in Little Rock, and you know he made a really strong profession of faith. He always swore that Clinton was saved, but there was no interest in the word. But who knows? Only God knows. But the point is that Satan always has to be ready. So you can always look out there and say, ah, it's going to be Obama. It's going to be Hillary. It's going to be whoever. You know, we don't know. Satan doesn't know who it's going to be either, but he's got somebody wait, waiting in the wings. Hey, guys. Hi. <laughs> um, my question is, once the tribulation happens and people are still here, people who do not believe, would you say that they are either deeply deceived, their life is ruled by something else, or maybe they're being ruled by fear or, or led by fear? Sort of a different question. But. Right. Well, I would say the people that are left behind are people that are not part of the body of Christ. And but they, I mean after. After the tribulation has happened. Okay. The people who are left and don't believe. I mean, people are gone. So you would think there would be some. Uh, well, I would say there, there is a strong delusion that Paul talks about given to such people. However... It's also true that many, 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 many people, I would say more people than any time in the history of mankind, will come to Christ in the tribulation period. It's going to be a time of tremendous evangelistic fruit. So yeah, there will be people under a strong delusion, but there will also be many people that are saved. So it's, it's both. What do you think? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, you, you look, at the, look at the big numbers that are in, in, in Revelation. Big numbers, 144,000. Lots, lots of big, bigger numbers, myriads upon myriads, which is um, basically Greek for thousands upon thousands or tens of thousands or tens of thousands. But then in, in Revelation 6, it says that those who were saved are without number. You can count all these others, but those who are saved, you can't count them. So it's going to be a remarkable time of, of salvation. Do you believe that if a person has heard the gospel and rejected it, that they can be saved after the, after the rapture? Um, I believe they can. And I'm not sure where I'm looking, but uh, oh, just raise your hand so I don't keep making it. There you go. That's a, that's a misunderstanding, from second, in my opinion, from 2 Thessalonians 2 about the strong delusion. And people and a lot of evangelists use this as a motivator. If you, don't, if you hear the gospel, understand it, but reject it, you're not going to be given another opportunity. But when you study that passage, it's not dealing with that particular issue. It's talking about the earth dwellers in the tribulation period itself being deceived. So when people use that passage to try to argue, if you understand it but reject it, you'll never have another chance in the tribulation period. That is using that 
text to ask a question that it's not answering. So all of that to say, I think it's completely possible for someone to hear the gospel, reject it, go into the tribulation period. Now, I'm a path of least resistance guy. I'd rather receive it now and go in the rapture. But it's possible for someone to hear it, reject it, go into the tribulation period, and be saved in that time period. There isn't, a, there isn't any clear verse in context which teaches otherwise. But. Yeah. Uh, I am post-trib. Now, y'all don't have to throw apples at me or anything. I respect your view. We'll pray for you. Thank you. <laughs> I'll pray for you, too. Thank you. But my question is, doesn't it behoove us as pastors and teachers to teach people to go through the, revelation, through the tribulation period, to strengthen themselves, to be able to do that? One of you are a colonel. I'm a lieutenant commander. I was taught to go through the worst times, and if the best time happens, we're okay. But, if, but what if the rapture doesn't happen at pre-trib? What if it happens at the end? Doesn't it behoove us to teach our people to go through it? Um, in my humble opinion, um, it changes your focus. It, it changes you from one of optimism and hope, looking for the any moment appearing of Jesus Christ, to someone that's gonna go into the wrath of God. And I don't really see that as a New Testament uh, uh, priority. And just real quick, I think it's completely and totally acceptable to teach the realities of trials and difficulty and adversity in the Christian life. Acts 14.22, for many, through many adversities we enter the kingdom of God. That's part of Christianity. But there is a form of wrath that we're not candidates for. And so... Sure. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to protect me through these periods of time. My, my point is, don't we want to teach people to have that type of deep faith to be able to go through that so that they can go through times like now? You want to try? I would, I would say I'm not going to teach them something that's not biblical. But yeah. Let, let me give you a little illustration. I need three volunteers. Give me three volunteers. Who wants to volunteer? Okay, I need you to come up here. We're going to do a little role play. So three volunteers. Okay. Here's one. One. Wait a minute. This guy's coming all the way around, so y'all wait. One of, one of you in blue sweater. You come. Blue sweater. Yeah. Blue sweater. That's you. Right. Okay. All right. We're going to set up a timeline here. This is, this is a great visual demonstration. All three of you come over here. <laughs> All right, follow me. Follow the leader. Okay, each of you stand here next to each other. Face to your left. Face that way. Okay? Side by side. Side by side. Side by side. What's your name? Jeannie. Jeannie. What's your name? Lou. Lou? Steve. Steve. Okay, Steve is a Christian. He's got on a black shirt. He realized he was a sinner. No. He's going to be a Christian. Okay? Lou here is not a Christian. And neither is, what's your name again? Jeannie. Jeannie. Neither is Jeannie. They're not a Christian. Now, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to walk through a timeline here. So they're in the church age. And I want you to take three steps forward. And boom, the rapture occurs. 
Now, what's going to happen to the Christian? Yeah, that's right. Just, just go up there a little bit. Just go up there a little bit because you're going to come back again. We're going to do this again. Okay, the, he, the, the Christian gets raptured. You're left with two unbelievers. They're going to come through the first part of the tribulation and stop. Now, Lou here is going to trust in Jesus. He's going to hear the gospel, and he's going to respond. So he's a believer. And stay here. You're not going anywhere. You've got to go through the rest of the tribulation. <laughs> We're not teaching partial, partial rapture here. Okay, and Jeannie, so we're going to come along, and we're going to come along, and then we come to the end of the tribulation. And like the verse says, one is taken. Okay, Jeannie, you're going to be taken. You take, you're taken off to judgment. And Lou, you're left, and you're not getting resurrected or raptured or anything. You still have your mortal body. So you're going to go into the millennial kingdom, you're going to find a wife, and you're going to have children, and you're going to repopulate the kingdom, okay? Now let's do this again. Come back over here. All three, yeah, all three of you. We're, yeah, come on back. Come on back. We're, we're, we're going to do this through the post-trip scenario now, Okay. So you're going through the church age, boom, come on, walking through the church age, and now the tribulation begins, and you're already a believer. Now, you become a believer in the middle of the tribulation. You're still, sadly, not a believer. You're going to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Now, Jesus comes back at the second coming. The rapture is going to occur just before he comes back. So you go get raptured and get your resurrection body. You go get raptured and get your resurrection body, and you're going to go off to torments and wait for the great white throne judgment. Who's going to go into the millennial kingdom with a corporeal body where they can uh, get married and have children and fill the kingdom? No one doesn't work. Okay? Thank you all. You did a great job. So I know that the world is like a really terrible, sinful place, and it just seems to continuously get worse. But um, I know several times in the past it has been thought by several people groups and um, countries and places that the rapture was going to come pretty soon, or that the end of time. I don't know. I just lost the word. But... <laughs> um, that it was going to come pretty soon. So what is specific about today's event, events and occurrences that you guys think it's going to come pretty soon? Well, we're not, we're not date setters, so we don't know. But to me, you've got more evidence than of any generation that's ever preceded us. And to me, the, what's called the super sign of the end times is Israel in the land in unbelief. The whole end times scenario can't happen unless you have an Israel in unbelief for the Antichrist to enter into a treaty with. And you know, for, from AD 70 when Israel was pushed out of the land by the Romans into what's called the diaspora or the dispersion, those prophecies seem crazy. There is no Israel in the land of Israel. And lo and behold, in our general lifetime, beginning in 1948, and then it just seems to accelerate with 1967 and then 1973. You have more and more Jews returning to the land of Israel. So you have the Israel in unbelief that prophecy demands has to be there. Now, then the question is, well, how long is it going to be 
until the end time scenario unfolds? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how long the clock will be held up. That's up to God. I'm just saying simply that we're seeing things in our generation that no prior generation has ever saw. We could go into other signs, but Israel in the land, in unbelief, is a big, big deal. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do, uh, we've got one more. Can we? Let's let Charlie answer one. He's been quiet over here. (laughs) Well, that was a great question. I was somewhat going to ask a question similar to the one that was just asked. Uh, And I think that uh, based on what we're seeing in, in the Uh, around the world today in terms of uh, globalism, uh, biotechnology, uh, the peace or semi-peace treaties made between Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, do lead, I I would think, one to believe that we are seeing things come together as in no other time in history. Uh, And as I've studied the scriptures over the last 21 years, and I think, and we all can check this out, but one out of every 30 verses in scripture has to do with prophecy. So it's pretty significant that God would want us to know a lot about prophecy. My question to you is uh, that based on what we're seeing, and I think I agree, is that I don't know if Satan will know who or when the rapture will take place, but nevertheless, he has to have someone in place to do so. Uh, But it it seems as though that this day and age, it's like no other in human history, uh, that we are seeing such an acceleration of knowledge and technology uh, and a, uh, a sense that we are coming to the end of the church age. Uh, is there anything to believe? Now, again, I understand in light that we're supposed to. There is a question in here, I promise. <laughs> there, there, do you, I, I guess the question would be, do you all think, based on what we're seeing today, that we are really accelerating towards a time, and we can't date set, that we would really see something uh, extraordinary within this generation, our lifetime? I don't know, five, ten years from now? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I... Is that working? I, I think that uh, Dr. Wood's point about Thanksgiving and Christmas are the answer. That when you start to see the Christmas preparations, you know Thanksgiving is close. So although we don't know the date, because we're not date setters, there's a sequence. And I think one of the important things to understand is that what's unique in our day, for, it goes back to, actually Immanuel Kant was the first guy to think in terms of one world government. And that came out of the wars of Europe. But we are seeing more and more emphasis on globalism. I work with it because I've worked with the climate issues. And it's, it's global. And I think the significance is that had Christ come back, say, in 900 AD to establish a global kingdom, it wouldn't be appreciated until we, as fallen human beings, have tried to handle global issues ourselves and trying to solve it. Because think of how God works in each one of our personal lives. Isn't it true in most cases that the Lord will drop a problem in our lap and let us mess with it until we realize we can't do it and then we turn to him? And I think that's true globally for all humanity. 
that what's happening now is you're having a coalescence of global financial issues, global environmental issues, and these global things are focusing on that. Now when Christ comes back, the human race can corporately appreciate his global kingdom, which couldn't have happened in 900, 800 AD because we didn't have a global consciousness. Good. We're going to have a lot of uh, discussion time tomorrow as well. We'll have Q&A in the morning. Uh, Dr. Dean is going to be speaking on the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, and some of the events that take place there. And you're going to follow through on the millennium in terms of some of these global concepts. And that's a fascinating thing taking place right now. So 830, the doors are open. We will have coffee. I, I don't know if anybody can say amen to that, but I do. And uh, 9 o'clock, we'll get started. We'll have a time of worship, and we'll go right into these two different sessions. We'll have Q&A immediately after. Can we give these guys a round of applause and thank them for being here? Thank you.